0: other. Anyways, as we uh, prepare to hear the word, let's welcome up again Jeremy Morris.
1: Long time no see. Yeah, good to see everybody again. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we, we did a little family vacation uh, a few months ago. We actually spent several years of our lives in San Diego, but we went down to visit. I don't know if any of you have, while or when you visited San Diego, that you have stopped by the, uh, the museum they have there on the retired uh, aircraft carrier, the Midway. Uh, it's parked right there in San Diego Bay and, and uh, is sitting unbelievable right there. You can hop on and take tours of it, but the Midway was actually commissioned eight days after World War II, and it was decommissioned uh, almost almost 50 years later in 1992, and it did a, it, it toured the world in a number of, of conflicts. But this boat is 1,000 feet long, and at, at its peak, it would have housed 4,500 sailors at one time. And so what they've done now is after they've retired it, they turned it into a museum. And you can uh, take tours of it, and you can, you can go see what life would have been like on the on an aircraft carrier. So we took our boys there a few months ago, our three little boys, and I kind of thought, you know, they get sort of bored with stuff quickly, and I thought, I don't know how long this will last, but as we got down into the belly of the boat, they were just fascinated with every different display we saw, and one thing that, that stood out to me as we were going through there was, was the laundry man. There was a guy on the boat who did nothing but collect laundry, Every working hour he was on the boat, he was the laundry man. And I think he would carry 40 to 60 pound bags over his shoulder, climbing up the stairs. That's all that guy did. That guy lived on an aircraft carrier for months at a time, picking up people's laundry and moving it around. Kind of back-breaking work. But then you take the complete opposite of that. At the very end of the tour, we went up into the tower where the air boss sat, where he controlled the deck He had a 10 mile view, a 10 mile radius viewed all the way around the aircraft carrier, and I thought it was kind of an apt picture of the Christian life. You've got you've got the laundry work, you've got the day to day grind of living the Christian life, but then it would be helpful every once in a while to come up deck, maybe go all the way up to the tower and get the big picture view. And, and that's kind of what we're going to do today. We're going to see, this is sort of a two-part sermon, or a, it's a, a long intro and then the sermon. But it's the big view of God. We want to see God's big view, His eternal plan. And then we want to see how that affects us in our day-to-day work, and our day-to-day per- participation in what God is doing. And so when we see this big picture, when we get the, the, the gist of what God's doing in the world, we walk away confident of God's plan, and then we participate in what He's doing wholeheartedly. And our text today is going to be in Acts 13. And what we see in Acts 13, uh, I'll just kind of walk up to where our text is. In Acts 13, we have Paul, Saul at that time, and Barnabas heading out on the first missionary journey. You see his clean break at at Acts 13, and this launches us into the rest of the book of Acts. At this point, we have the official start of the missionary endeavor. This is the first effort to send messengers beyond the boundaries of where they'd been that wasn't spawned by persecution the intentional bringing of the gospel to the world but our text in particular is going to be in acts 13 verses 42 to 52 i'm going to read those acts 14 or excuse me 13 verses 42 to 52 read with me and as paul and barnabas were leaving The people kept pleading that these words might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But having shaken off the dust of their feet against them, they went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Again, this is shortly after the beginning of the first missionary journey. And Paul is in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, in the heart of of modern-day Turkey. So when, when we come to a text like this, what I want to do, is, as I spoke about before, is I want to answer a couple of questions. I want to answer the why question. Why were Paul and Barnabas in this place at this time doing this? And then the how question. How did they conduct themselves once they were there the why question why are they saying in verse 46 behold we are turning to the gentiles this is kind of the tower view what is everything that has led them up to this point why are they there and then the how what did they do in that moment this is like the laundry worker what do they do in the day-to-day movement of their lives so we have the big picture view the the tower view why are they there And then the laundry worker, the day-to-day view, how did they conduct themselves? So this part one, the why, the big picture view, I want to just do a, a, I want to take us in a big wave all the way from God's beginning of God's eternal plan to the point they're at now, just to get us the background. Why would they be doing this at this point? And why would Paul be saying, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles? And so a good place to start that is just flip back with me to Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24 is going to give us a way to launch back and see what God's plans were from the very beginning. Luke 24, this is right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he appears, he's eating fish with the disciples, and in Luke 24, 44, he says this, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. So it says in the text, he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. What scriptures would that have been? This is the Old Testament scriptures. And he would tell them things I think we're familiar with. We knew that it was prophesied that the Christ would suffer, that he would rise again. But he says it's written in the scriptures that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. He's telling them it's been written from the beginning that the proclamation would go to the end of the earth. Not only that he would suffer and die, but it is written that his his proclamation would go to the ends of the earth. And so I imagine, what scriptures was he opening to them? What was he showing them in in their holy scriptures that was pointing to what was to come? This kingdom program, what might he have said? So this idea of taking, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth did not begin in the New Testament era. It's not just some idea that, that popped up. When we see he proclaims that it was in the law, it was in the prophets, it was in the writings, the Psalms. We imagine he would have taken them back to the Abrahamic covenant, the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he'd repeat this promise multiple times at the offering of Isaac Isaac. He would say, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. He said again to Isaac, by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And he repeats this idea throughout the Mosaic law. He had called out his people. He had established a covenant with them, but he always cared for the nations, for the sojourner, for the, the alien. Even in the law, in Exodus twelve forty nine. He says, the same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. And he says this in many ways. He tells them in Exodus 19:5 through 6, Now then, if, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my, pos- my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He would say to the nation of Israel, you as each citizen is a priest. You have access to the king. They were to be the mediator, the the ones that would bridge the gap between God and man, to represent him to the rest of the world, to be the example to the other nations, to see their holy beliefs and actions, and that it would impress the nations enough to want to know the same God. He calls them the holy nation, that they were set apart under the law, making them different. We, we see this in 1 Kings as Solomon is building the temple that David was not allowed to build. And in 1 Kings 8.41, as he's dedicating the temple to the Lord, he says this, Also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people, when he comes from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name, to fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. And of course, Israel would demonstrate themselves incapable of this, and it was apparent as you read, immediately after, three chapters later, Solomon himself fails. And we see this downward spiral all the way to exile. But again, we see, we see it through, through the, uh, the prophets. We see it through the law. We see it in the Psalms. Psalm 22, really remembered as a, a psalm of lament, if you remember the most famous quotation from that verse 1, uttered by Jesus on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at the end of this psalm, in verse 27 of Psalm 22, it says this, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. Uttered by Jesus, the first part of the psalm uttered by Jesus on the cross. And the the well-known psalm, Psalm 67, 4, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you have judged the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations of the earth. Through the prophets like Jonah, what does Lord, the Lord do? He sends Jonah to Nineveh, calling for repentance to the hated Assyrians that's ultimately going to drag the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. In Jonah 4, he says to Jonah, you had compassion on the plant. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? God is not indifferent to the nations, even to the enemies of Israel. And another place, finally here, that's quoted in our text. In verse 47. Isaiah 49.6. The suffering servant of Yahweh. Yahweh says. Is it too small a thing. That you should be my servant. To raise up the tribes of Jacob. And to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nation. So that my salvation. May reach to the end of the earth. Yahweh speaking to the suffering servant. That is, that is Christ. And so we. We see this evidenced all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And this is what uh, Jesus, before his ascension, is opening up their minds to see. We would have seen it demonstrated through the life of Christ. Think of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan woman. Christ was consistently go, uh, demonstrating that it was, his gospel was not restricted. But now, back to where they're at in Luke 24, he's making this clear to them. But they've got to be thinking, how is this going to happen? How is it going to happen? Israel failed. And you imagine they're hearing these words of Jesus, and he's opening their minds, but they're thinking, how are you going to pull this off? I grew up uh, with a TV show back in the 80s. One of my favorite shows was MacGyver. I don't know if anybody's a MacGyver fan. But if you watch enough uh, episodes of MacGyver, here's what you start to learn. No matter what happens, MacGyver figures out a plan out of the most impossible, ridiculous situation. He's going to find a way out. And it's usually with a paper clip and, and some duct tape. That's how MacGyver worked. He, was, he would get out of every situation. I went back and looked at one uh, the other day, and he built a hang glider out of some broken satellite parts and a plastic shield, and he jumps off this cliff from some army that's coming after him, and he sails perfectly to the ground. That was MacGyver. You turn on the show to see what kind of jam is he going to get in because you know he was going to get out of it. But they've got to be thinking with Christ. They'd seen so much. They believed in him. He's opening their minds, but they're thinking, how is he going to do this? How is his gospel going to go to the ends of the earth, given all of the failures of Israel? And that brings us up as we approach our text. That brings us up to the book of Acts. And shortly after this testimony in Luke 24, we come to the book of Acts. And in Acts 1.8, Christ says to them, before his ascension, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the end of the earth. And what, what Luke has actually done for us there in that single verse is he just gave us the outline for the entire book of Acts, how God's plan is going to unfold. Because to Jerusalem first, the, the message would go. That's what you have in chapters 1 through 7. And then the, out, the, uh, the stoning of Stephen, the persecution of the church. What is the church forced to do? They spread, and it starts to go into Judea and Samaria. That's verses 8 through 12. And finally, as you get to chapter 13 of the book of Acts, it's going now to the ends of the earth. The first missionary journey, the intentional bringing of the message to the ends of the earth. And so that's where we ha- what we have in Acts chapter 13 as we lead up to our text. You see all this buildup. You see that it's been spoken of through the Old Testament. You see that Christ says, you're going to be my witnesses here, 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 to the ends of the earth. We see all that builds up in 12 chapters, and now they're in chapter 13. And they're moving into the first missionary journey. And they're bringing the message to the ends of the earth. But a question you might have at this point is, if it all starts at chapter 13, bringing it to the Gentiles, bringing the message to the Gentiles, hadn't that already been kind of taking place? And you might even think about uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. It says that there were, there were Jews from all these nations, but it also says there were proselytes. That would be there were Gentile converts to, to uh, Judaism. And we have Acts chapter 8 where we have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch Another Gentile who he, he was baptized, and then Acts ten we have Cornelius and his whole household, and the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles, and then Peter defending this to the other apostles, and then in Acts chapter nineteen we have, or excuse me, Acts chapter eleven we have men, unknown, unnamed men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch, who began speaking to Greeks and preaching the Lord Jesus. The church in Antioch was founded by unnamed men. But what we see in chapter 13 is this symbolic shift. It's intentional uh, uh, display by Luke as to what the intention was from here on out. The groundwork was laid. The Holy Spirit had come on the Gentiles. Peter brought this word to them. And now Paul is in a position to say, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 13, what we have is Saul and Barnabas in the church in Antioch. Barnabas, the one who took Saul at his conversion and brought him and vouched for him to the apostles, the one who was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit, and who went with Paul to, to bring the gift to the church in Jerusalem. And then we have Saul. Saul, of course, the one ravaging the church, persecuting it, pursuing those who would follow Christ, and approaching Damascus, he sees a light from heaven and he's radically converted. And he's told, Ananias is told by the Lord, by Christ, that Paul was going to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. And so as we look through Acts chapter 13, we see in verse 2, they leave the church in Antioch and the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Antioch was a few hundred miles north of Jerusalem and this was the launching pad for the mission to the Gentiles. And in verse 3, we see the send-off. They had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. And just as sort of a side note, we see the biblical model for sending out missionaries. They are approved by the local church, the hands laid on them by the local church, by the elders, and they are sent out accountable to a local body. And where do they go? They they head off in verse 5. They first go to Seleucia and Cyprus and Salamis, where they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And we have a fascinating section here that further signals this transition. And in verse seven of Acts chapter 13, they encounter a false prophet. And verse six, and, and verse seven, they encounter a false prophet and uh, Sergius Paulus, a, a prominent Gentile. And we see a Jew and a Gentile receiving hearing the message. And we see the fact that one rejects it. Bar Jesus or uh, uh, the Jew would have rejected the message and Sergius Paulus accepts it. One was opposing them and seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But what we see is Sergius Paulus embraces it. And it says in verse 12 that he he would believe being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And Luke is hinting at what is to come. That there was going to be a rejection by his own people, and that there was going to be this mass acceptance by the Gentiles. Also interesting here in in verse nine says this. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. We see another intentional uh, move by Luke to signal something that's coming. You know, you may have heard that you know Paul changed or God changed uh, Saul's name to Paul or or whatever, I, I, I can explain this to you. He intentionally references him as Saul, and in this verse moves it to Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul actually would have had four names. As a, as a Roman citizen, he would have had what was called a a, a praenomen. That would be his first name, or his forename. We don't know what that was. He had his nomen, which would have been his family name. We also don't know what that is. But he had a cognomen, which would have been his given name. And this was Paul. But he has another name. He has his Hebrew name. That's the name Saul. So what we see here is Luke referencing his name as his Hebrew name. And in one verse, changes and starts referencing him to his Roman citizen name. And this is intentional. It is not that any name changed, but the reference is signaling there's a movement. Something's taking place here. He's hinting at what is to come. And as they move along, and verses 13 and 14, they set sail... And they arrive in Pisidian Antioch. And in Pisidian Antioch, Paul would do what he would do throughout the book of Acts, which was, the, which was the practice of Christ himself. And he would preach a sermon in the synagogue. In Acts 13, 16 through 25, he speaks about God's providence and his promise throughout Old Testament history. And that Christ, in verses 26 through 37, is the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy And he would issue them an invitation to believe and a warning against rejecting the message. And in Acts chapter 13 and 38 to 39, we see this incredible statement by Paul, which is the heart of what the gospel is. Let me read it for you. Acts 13, 38 to 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and that in him... Everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified from through the law. In this sermon, Paul is preaching justification by faith in Christ. This is the message, the heart of his message. And this is where we close out all of the background leading up to where they're standing now that Christ told them, opened up their minds that that he'd been speaking of this from the very beginning. And we see it unpacked throughout the Old Testament. And we see the beginning of the book of Acts, all the groundwork being laid. And it brings us to this moment in Pisidian Antioch. Paul has preached a sermon. He and Barnabas are there and we're in our text. So now we're in the second part. I just gave you the tower view. I gave you the, the 360 view of God's eternal plan. Now we're going under into the boat. The laundry worker. What do they do? How do they conduct themselves? This is the how. God orchestrated everything for his eternal plan. Now, what model did they follow? This is the view inside the boat. And I would just say this, whether global missions or evangelism, we're going to see an engagement. There's an engagement that's going to take place, a confrontation that must take place, and it revolves around the gospel. So in this text, in verses 42 to 52, we're just gonna, I'm going to pull out four lessons as we go through here. Again, whether it's conducting yourself in worldwide missions or conducting yourself in personal evangelism. I'll, I'll mention them as we go along, but there are these four things. We preach the word, we're bold in the face of opposition, we trust in God's sovereignty, and we rejoice in his unstoppable work. I'll just pull them out as I walk through this text. Let's start walking through it. Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. It, it says here this word, kept begging. I mean, it gives a bit of the impression, but you have to understand what this is. This is a persistent begging to hear more of the words of Paul, this idea of justification by faith. This is a strong sense This ongoing, this imploring and them. And I know it's, um, it's common for a pastor to stand at the back and greet the congregation as they go out. And people are polite and say, well, great sermon, pastor. I don't know how many times anybody has, has come to the point where they're literally holding the hand, begging. Give me more of these words. But imagine that's the picture. This is a dramatic picture as Paul stepped into the synagogue and preached the gospel. And people are coming to him, begging him. And in verse 43, it says, Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And one of the most difficult things for any missionary uh, at any time is to gain a hearing. And we have this incredible development of the synagogue, which was kind of a mystery in between the Testaments, and it would give the, the, you know, the ability for Paul to stand in there and pro- proclaim the gospel. And he was doing it not only to Jews, but what they call in our text here, God-fearing proselytes. It's kind of a combination of two things, but what it really is is converts from polytheism to Judaism. And, and these are be- they're begging for more of this message, and Paul and Barnabas are urging them to continue in the grace of God. It is apparent that some of them have, had embraced the message the message that you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You were justified by faith. That that this message of grace, don't abandon that. You know, the woe that, that Christ gave to the Pharisees was this in Matthew twenty-three, fifteen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And so you can imagine anybody burdened by this message becoming twice over the son of hell by trying to work their way to God. This is incredible news. And he's saying, don't go back to the way you had gone. Embrace the message, the grace of God. And this is what is going to become the grounds of anger against Paul and Barnabas. The outrage that's going to follow is because every other religion on the planet is telling you what you must do to get to God. What you must do. And the message of the gospel kicks against the pride of man. The pride of man that says, I can do something to make myself acceptable. And the Jews are thinking, we've been working so hard, and you're just going to give them this message that without doing anything, they, they can come to God? This is the reason, imagine those people in the synagogue hear this message. You would be begging for more of this message too. The message that you're free from the works of the law, that you can't make yourself right before God. And he goes on in verse 44, The next Sabbath nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. And this is where we see our first lesson. The first lesson is, is they preached the word of the Lord. They preached the message of justification by faith through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The message of faith and the warning of rejection. And we see this idea of the word of the Lord four times in our text. In verse 44, the whole assembly assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. What was the draw? What was bringing the whole town to the synagogue the next Sunday? Was it the cleverness of Paul and Barnabas? Was it some sort of seeker message that was going to give them something for nothing? I mean, it was, but material things? Was it... Was it tickling their ears? No, it was this. It was the word of the Lord. And as we see, the word of the Lord divides. The true preaching of the gospel is embraced or it is rejected. It is believed or it is rejected. The Bible is clear on that. And so their emphasis is this. They preach the word of the Lord. And and that in any engagement, our obligation is to just clearly express what the word of the Lord says. That's, that's our first lesson. But in verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And this word jealousy or envy, it's, it's interestingly uh, the same word that's used for zeal in the New Testament. It's, it's this idea of this Old Testament righteous indignation for the honor of God and his house. And this zeal can be a very good thing. But it could also be misplaced and perverted. And Paul would use the same word to speak of himself in Philippians 3.16. He would say, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. And, you know, we can can readily appreciate the annoyance of the Jews in the synagogue. It's practically being taken over by this Gentile audience. And they're getting a a favorable hearing to what they would have seen as an unacceptable message. One commentator says this, Zeal for the covenant has blinded them from seeing the breakthrough of God's promise with the result that positive zeal has become negative by cutting short the ultimate promise intended by the law. And Paul would speak of his own people in Romans 10 too. I testify about them that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. This would have been the similar reaction that Christ would receive in his hometown after he spoke Uh, uh, praisingly of Gentiles in the Old Testament, it says that that all the people in the synagogues were filled with rage as they heard these things. In his hometown, everyone who was astonished by him, as soon as they heard the message, were enraged over God's grace to the Gentiles because the truth cuts, the truth divides. It says they were blaspheming, and, and this would lead them to blaspheme the word of God. And this idea of attacking the, really the message of Christ is passed on from Christ to those who are his followers, his own community. And, and Paul would have said for this cause, Paul was himself a persecutor of the church and a blasphemer because he spoke against and, and persecuted the very people of God as if it was Christ himself. Why are, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And verse 46 The reaction from Paul and Barnabas was this. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you rejected and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And we'll pull out of this our second lesson. They spoke the word of the Lord clearly. And secondly, second lesson is they spoke boldly in the face of opposition. This idea of boldly, it could be thought of as speaking freely. Or another word is with candor, with truthness. You notice this is not uh, they spoke obnoxiously to them or they spoke with anger. It doesn't mean they engaged in in an angry argument. What it means is this, their boldness was simply turning to the anger against them and, and opposing them with truth. Honesty. You could say they were unflinching in their boldness. You know, a boxers, trained boxers, our, our natural instinct, if, if somebody comes up to you and swings a fist at you or, or punches you, your instinct is to close your eyes, is to flinch, is to do something that actually puts you in a worse position than you were before. You think to protect yourself, you close your eyes, you flinch. It's our natural instinct. And what has to be trained out of a boxer is an instinct to, bl- to close your eyes and to flinch. And, and it's the similar thing in, in our culture. There's pressure from our culture that makes holding the truths that we hold, the biblical truths, makes us want to shrink back. It makes us want to flinch. It makes us want to close our eyes. And the, the reality is we have to train this out of ourselves. Our, our sinful nature, our, our own pride, our own fear of man is instinctual to flinch in opposition to the truth of the Bible. So we train that out of ourselves. We train that out by relying on God's word and realizing that in the face of opposition, we need to be ready to speak the truth boldly, unflinchingly. And to be quite honest, it's easy for me to preach boldly here with what seems like a, a, you know people who are friendly to what I'm saying for the most part, um, who, who may share these beliefs. I can be very bold in a pulpit in a, a church where I know a lot of people. But the difficulty is, is to be bold and unflinching in the, in the workplace, in one-on-one interactions, with your family, with those who would individually, looking at you in close quarters, oppose what you're saying. And so we train that out of ourselves through God's word. And he says to them, though, he says it was necessary that this message be brought to them. And Luke doesn't say exactly why it's necessary, but I think it's, it's obvious. The Christian message was the fulfillment of Israelite history. And no other people had... Had so clear a right to hear what God had to say, and no other nation was so likely to understand and accept what was said. But they deemed themselves unworthy, it says in the text. That is, their action had, had the effect of turning away the offer of eternal life. And, and that the rejection and the, the lack of salvation is their responsibility now. And Paul says in verse 46 then, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, and we're introduced to the pattern that we would see through the rest of the book of Acts, the refusal of most Jews to believe, although a remnant would believe, a proclamation to the Gentiles who would embrace it in large numbers. And it would usually be these God-fearing Gentiles, those who who would embrace the message of Judaism and who attended the synagogue. They would become the nucleus of the New Testament church. But this isn't the only time that Paul uses this phrase, Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. He says it again in Acts 18 and 28. But this is not a, a change of strategy. He was going to enter the synagogue in Iconium in the very next town he'd step into. But what he's saying here is that he's putting the indictment against the Jews of, the, of Pisidian Antioch and he is making a declaration. This, there is no exclusion in the gospel message. All the nations have the right to hear this message and whoever will believe in verse forty-seven, he says this: "For so the Lord has commanded." As Paul says, "I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth." And we, I mentioned this earlier, but this is a quotation of Isaiah uh, forty-nine six. This is this is one of the the suffering songs in the book of Isaiah. Uh, there are four suffering servant songs. You may be most familiar with uh, the fourth, which is the bulk of the first part of. Uh, of uh, Isaiah 53 is well-known. But what we see in this section in Isaiah is that initially Israel is spoken of as the servant in in Isaiah 41.8. It says, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen. But we see in in, in, uh, Isaiah 42 as we go on, God's official servant is deaf and blind. And by the time we get to uh, Isaiah 48, we're at this climax where Israel is in need of the servant. And we come to a text like Isaiah 49.6, and I'll read it again. He says, is it, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant. This is Yahweh speaking to the servant, who we would ultimately learn is Christ. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nation, so that my salvation may reach to the end of of the earth. Yahweh speaking to Christ, the suffering servant. And what do we have in our text? We have Paul saying, the Lord has commanded us, I've placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And he's doing an incredible thing here. He's so identifying with Christ as to take this on as a command, as a gospel messenger, as a light for the Gentiles. Paul is a light to the Gentiles only in virtue of the Christ whom he preaches. He is a light to the Gentiles as He, Christ is preached to them by his servants. He's he's really making an incredible statement here by taking that command upon himself. And this is, it's profound what he's doing here. He's so identifying with Christ as to take the command upon himself to bring the message of Christ to the ends of the earth. And in verse 48, when the Gentiles hear the statement from his mouth, they began rejoicing And again, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Glorifying the word of the Lord. They had become first class members in the family of God. No circumcision, no renunciation of their ethnic identity. You imagine the appeal. And this is this rapid conversion we see at these moments to the Christian faith. And in this verse 48, we see our third lesson. Third lesson, we we saw that we preach the word of the Lord, that we, we do it boldly, unflinchingly in the face of opposition. And the third lesson here, they trusted in the sovereignty of God. They trust in God's sovereignty. This word here, as many as had been appointed, it's a passive, a passive verb. As many as had been appointed, as many as had been assigned, had been ordered, had been arranged. And the implied actor in this text is God. And and one commentator says, just as God was the major actor, major active agent in all that led up to this point, so he is the active agent in bringing the Gentiles to himself. So, what does this mean for evangelism and missions? It means this the word of God, our proclamation of the word of God, is the means, but God saves sinners. God saves sinners. Read let's let's read Romans 10 verses 13 to 15. Romans 10:13 to 15. Paul says this, "For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent?" Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. It is absolutely necessary for a person to be brought the saving message of Jesus Christ. But we know this, that God is the Lord over salvation. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That brings us a relief and a confidence. Obedience to God's instruction Give us, gives us the confidence and the relief that he will do what he is going to do with the word. We are faithful to proclaim it. He says, Christ says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. He will save his own. We simply proclaim the message. You know, prior to going to seminary, I, w- I worked in construction in road work and uh, everybody in that line of work starts out, starts out in the same place with a shovel in hand digging ditches the lowest man on the totem pole now you've got the guy digging ditches doing his job day in day out generally oblivious to the general flow of the project that's what the superintendent's taking care of the superintendent is overseeing the entire project making sure it gets done under budget on time with the right quality in sequence scheduling everything properly and then there's the guy digging the ditch told on a daily basis here's what you do here's what you do Now, if you're that ditch digger, the last thing you want to do is be responsible for running the entire project. And we can just imagine ourselves as ditch diggers in the kingdom of God. God is superintending the entire process and he's given us the privilege to hold a shovel and dig dig ditches in his kingdom with, with all the joy that we don't have the responsibility of superintending all of his plan. Verse 49 goes on, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. The, the, the gospel was being broadcast. And this is the natural result of the gospel being preached. It automatically resulted in localized evangelism by new converts. Right from the start, the church was self-propagating. Paul's evangelism was not to every single individual in every place he went. The local body of believers would be the light God's model is organic. It is is worked through the changed lives of individuals who have been affected by the gospel. Uh, You know, we have the corporate model. We have marketing and PR and branding and all these things that we do in in the the business world to build a product, to to build a following. And this is God's model right here. Changed hearts in the local church from the preached word of God. The preach word of God, changing hearts, spreading, bringing the light to others. But in verse 50, it says, The Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And this would be the harassment that would follow them through the rest of the book of Acts. But this is to be expected if we're faithful gospel proclaimers. Acts, or 2 Timothy 3.2 All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And what was their response in verse 41? But they shook the dust off their feet and protested against them and went to Iconium. This was a, a very symbolic gesture that they would have given them. Jewish travelers would have shook the dust from their feet when leaving a pagan town. And the action is treating this Jewish community as if it's pagan, as if they were abandoning the truth. Mark 5.11, you remember when Jesus sends the disciples out and he tells them, any place that does not receive you as you go out, shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. And you imagine the, the, the boldness of this, this transition's taking place. Now the Gentiles the ones despised by the Jews were embracing the gospel and Paul and Barnabas are shaking the dust off their feet when they leave this community. And they're, 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 of course, they're not abandoning the Jews, they, they being Jews themselves, and that they would continue to bring this message you know, and a remnant of the Jews would believe, but what they're saying is, this divide that you have created does not exist. And if you reject it, you're treated as a pagan. And finally, in verse 40, 52 the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And we draw our fourth lesson out of here. We, we know that we preach the word of Lord, the word of the Lord. We do it boldly. We rely on, on him as the one sovereign over salvation. And finally, we rejoice in the unstoppable work of the Lord. So in verse 49, the word is spreading. A church is planted despite the obstacles presented by the Jews. And the progress of the church cannot be stopped. And and, and, uh, Christ would proclaim in response to Peter's confession in Matthew 16, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So God's heart is and always has been that salvation through Christ would come to the ends of the earth He opened the minds of the disciples to see it in the Old Testament all throughout. And then he he shows us in the book of Acts how that unfolds to the point where we see this message here in this bold proclamation. And and it applies directly to our lives. This proclamation to the ends of the earth has not stopped. God's heart for the nations has not stopped. God's heart for each community, that that each person living and, and breathing in his church is a gospel proclaimer in their sphere of influence. We are to preach the word of God boldly. Let's trust in the sovereignty of God and ultimately we will rejoice in the unstoppable work he's doing in building his church. Let's close by reading uh, this, the, the, uh, the proclamation of, of John in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7, verses 9 to 12. We'll close with this. Revelation 7, 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels... We're standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen. The blessing and the glory and the wisdom and the thanksgiving and the honor and the power and the strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. God will receive the maximum glory when it all culminates and we get to participate in the work of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we are able to open up your word freely and proclaim it. I pray that you would embed these truths in our heart that wherever we are, we would, we would train ourselves through your word and your spirit to be unflinching, that we would be gospel proclaimers and that we would just reap incredible joy through the obedience to your word. I pray all this in Christ's name